Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 8, verse 40 to 56. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, She came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him, except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. The grass withers, the flowers fade but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good afternoon. My name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic, and uh, I want to welcome you again to our afternoon service today. We're currently in the middle of a sermon series on the first half of the book of Luke. And what we've been seeing is that Jesus subverts the wisdom and the values of the world. Last week, we saw in Luke chapter 7 an example of Luke showing two different people, the sinful woman and Simon the Pharisee. And in those people, we saw two very different attitudes toward Jesus. And what we said was, one person usually gets it and the other doesn't. In our passage today, we see Luke again putting two people side by side. But this time, It's not that one person gets it and the other doesn't. Both get it. But the way that both of them get it is not what anyone would expect. We'll see why the events of this passage had to unfold exactly the way that they did. So what happens in our story? Well, at this point in Jesus' ministry, his popularity is continuing to soar. Jesus, after spending some time away, returns to Galilee, and there's this huge crowd waiting for him. And one of the rulers of the synagogue, a very important man by the name of Jairus, comes and begs Jesus to come to his house to heal his dying little girl. His only child, just 12 years old, Jesus agrees, and they set off. The crowds are pressing in. Think Penn Station at rush hour. It is loud, it is chaotic, it is frantic. But as they're going, a woman who suffered from chronic bleeding 
comes to Jesus and touches the fringe of his cloak, and immediately she is healed. And rather than just continuing on to Jairus' house, Jesus stops the crowd in order to talk to her. But as they're talking, a messenger comes from the house with the message that Jairus' daughter has died. But Jesus continues on to the house. They approach the house. They hear sobs of those who are grieving. And he tells everybody she's not dead, she's just asleep. He enters the house with a few of his disciples and the parents. He takes the dead child by the hand and he raises her from the dead. That's the general plot of these verses. There is a lot going on in this story. There are so many strands that are woven together by the end. And I want to address just three points from this passage. Who Jesus saves, why Jesus saves, and how Jesus saves. Who Jesus saves, why Jesus saves, and how Jesus saves. First, who Jesus saves. We're presented in this story with two people, an insider and an outsider. And the same story, it appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and these two people are in each of the accounts, Jairus and this unnamed woman. And they're placed side by side in the story for a reason. And this is the only time in the Bible where we see this intersection of miracles. And that begs the question, what does one have to do with the other? What does one event have to do with the other? What does one person have to do with the other? So we're going to take a look real quickly at the differences between them. The most obvious difference between Jairus and the woman is the name. He's given a name, but she is not. And we saw this same thing last week in Luke chapter 7. There was this dinner party hosted by Simon the Pharisee, and this woman of the city comes and crashes the party so that she can meet Jesus. We had Simon and we had the unnamed woman. This week we see Jairus and an unnamed woman. Why is the woman in each of these stories not given a name? And what we see here is that Luke does this deliberately to highlight and reflect the popular sentiment towards these two people. The important and respected men are given names, and the socially marginalized women are not, because as far as everyone is concerned, these women were absolute bottom-of-the-barrel nobodies. They were women in a society that prioritized men. Furthermore, this woman in Luke 8, she suffered from a physical condition that involved a chronic discharge of blood. That meant that she had a perpetual menstrual cycle instead of a monthly cycle. She suffered for this, from this for 12 years. And this meant two things at least. The old, according to the Old Testament religious law, a woman was ceremonially unclean during her menstrual period. So for seven days during her menstrual cycle, she could not participate in religious ceremony and anybody she touched would be ceremonially unclean. We'll talk about that more later. For this woman, what it meant was a permanent restriction from religious ceremony. 
Also socially, this made marriage and childbearing impossible. She was therefore an outcast religiously, but also socially because she would not be able to touch another person during her time of bleeding. And Luke tells us that whatever money she had, she spent it all on physicians who were not able to heal her. Jairus, on the other hand, he was a religious leader. He wasn't a Pharisee, a scribe, or a priest, but he was a leader of the local synagogue. This meant that he oversaw the building, the worship service. He'd be in charge of what passages from the Torah would be read during the service, as well as the other elements of worship. It was a position of tremendous religious importance and therefore also social importance. He was a man of wealth, a man of influence, and they were very different. But they were also different in their understanding of Jesus. This woman had a very limited understanding of Jesus and how he healed. This is her plan. If I touch Jesus, I'll be healed. If I touch his cloak, I'll be healed. It's a very superstitious theology. Jairus, on the other hand, he understands that Jesus needs to be the one touching the afflicted in order to heal them. Not vice versa. Jairus invites Jesus to his house so that he can touch his, 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 his little girl and she could be healed. He understands how this works. So they're very different in their understanding of theology and Jesus. But they're also differing in their commitment to Jesus. Jairus, he actually risks a lot by coming to Jesus. Remember that many of his colleagues during this time, they were not sympathetic to Jesus. Jesus was a very controversial person. There were many, many who did not like him. They ranged from skeptical to downright hostile. For Jairus to come to Jesus, to fall on his knees before Jesus' feet, this is making a huge statement as to where he stood, as to where his allegiances were. He was risking his position in the synagogue, his reputation, his wealth, just by associating with Jesus. It's a lot on the line for him. The woman, on the other hand, she tries to steal a healing. She doesn't even have the courage to approach Jesus, to ask for healing. She tries to touch his cloak and run away. And she would technically be making anyone she touched ceremonially unclean, so she tries to do this secretly. And finally, probably the most obvious difference between the two is that their conditions are different. One is a chronic condition, the other is an acute condition. The woman has suffered from this same condition for 12 years. On the other hand, you have Jairus' daughter, who's 12 years old and on the brink of death. It's quite obvious for us, it's quite obvious for everyone in this story, who Jesus should address first. In every way, Jairus should get priority. 
This woman is an outsider, religiously, socially, morally, but Jesus, as he so often does in ministry, goes first to the outsider. So let's go back to the situation. They are rushing toward Jairus' house in this last-ditch effort to heal Jairus' dying daughter. And still, Jesus stops for the woman. She's just as important, if not more. To Jesus, he will not be rushed. Jesus' priorities and our priorities are very, very different. Are you ever confused by the timing of Jesus? Does it ever frustrate you because things are not working out the way that you know they should? Why didn't I get that promotion? Why didn't I get into this school? Why doesn't she like me back? Why? Well, it'll become clear in this passage that Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He does everything deliberately and intentionally. He's not slow to act or ignorant. He has a plan. Who does Jesus save? Both of them. Two very different people, very different lives, but the common denominator between the two of them is that they both reach a point in their lives where they acknowledge that they can't save themselves. They are utterly incapable of addressing and meeting their own deepest needs. And they look to Jesus to heal them. Jesus was their only hope. He was the only chance they had. You know, the only prerequisite for Christianity, it's to admit that you cannot save yourself. And you look to Jesus in faith to save you. That's it. It doesn't matter if you are a man or a woman. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, educated or ignorant, respected or ignored, moral or immoral. But what we learn from Luke, what we see here, is that even though this is the case, in general, the outsiders tend to get it first. The people with nothing, the people with nobody, sinners, tax collectors, the poor, women, they tend to get it faster than those who have more to let go of. Augustine said, God always pours his grace out into empty hands. He's always trying to give us good things, but our hands are often too full to receive them. Tim Keller puts it this way, all you need to be saved is nothing, but yet so many people don't have it. What we see in the story is that while the world would prioritize Jairus and his daughter, Jesus will not budge until this woman is not only healed, but also restored. Imagine what would have happened if Jesus let this woman slip away. She touches his cloak, she's healed, she gets away. Then she tells all her friends, hey, you're hurting? Go touch Jesus' cloak. Right? You'd have all these people on the street now selling Jesus' clothing in order to, 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 for people to get healed. Jesus needs to correct her understanding of him. Also, if she were to go and, and tell society, guess what, guys, I'm healed. How would people know? How would people know? Yeah, sure you're healed. Jesus tells the world, tells everyone there, tells the crowd, 
she is healed. He wants to make sure that she is not just healed physically, but also restored socially, that she has a correct understanding of him. This woman has nothing, no family, no friends, no future, no cure, no money, nothing. She's too ashamed to even approach Jesus. Jairus is also at a point of complete desperation. He falls to his knees before Jesus. Who does Jesus save? Those who come to him by faith, but especially those who are marginalized, broken, and ignored. But why does Jesus save? My second point, why does Jesus save? We see here that Jesus has a much greater agenda than to just physically heal two individuals. Can you imagine for a moment what this woman's life has been like for the past 12 years? The physical pain and discomfort, the psychological turmoil, the social stigma, 12 years with this debilitating illness. And it must have been such a source of shame to be known as the unclean one, to live on the outskirts of society, to be terrified of contact with anybody. But the worst of it, the loneliness. Nobody knows what I'm going through. Nobody cares. Nobody can help. Imagine praying desperately, fervently, stubbornly, and to hear nothing for 12 years. What must she have thought about God? He doesn't want to heal me. And she hears about Jesus and naturally she's thinking, why would he want to heal me? A holy person like that would never touch someone like me. And this plan that she devises, it is one of total desperation. Remember, she can't touch anybody. Even if she wasn't sick, it would be inappropriate for an unmarried woman to touch a man that she's not married to. But all the more, with her condition, it is unthinkable. Her plan is, I'm going to sneak up behind him, I'm going to touch his clothes, and then I'm going to run and hope that that is enough for me to be healed. I don't know if she herself believes that this will work. I'm guessing not. But this is an act of a desperate woman with nothing left to lose. So she hears that Jesus is coming. She sneaks into the crowd. She pushes her way toward Jesus, trying not to be noticed but doing her best to get through to Jesus. She gets closer and closer and closer until finally she is standing right behind him. She takes a breath. She reaches out her hand. And Luke tells us that she touches the fringe of his garment. The fringe. The end. She doesn't grab it. It is barely a touch. She grazes it. Instantly, she knows. She feels it. She's healed. The blood stops. After 12 
years, she is free. No more blood, no more isolation, no more shame. But she's only allowed to savor that feeling for a moment because she realizes that Jesus has stopped. Who touched me? The crowd stops with Jesus and they kind of hush down to listen to what Jesus is saying. Everyone is looking around. Who touched me? Everyone's thinking, what do you, what? <laughs> what do you mean, who touched you? And Peter kind of speaks for the crowd. He says, what do you mean, who touched you? Everybody touched you. Do you not see the crowd, Jesus? But Jesus keeps looking around. He says, no, somebody touched me. I felt power leave me. Who touched me? And this woman knows that Jesus knows. She knows that he is looking for her. It was too good to be true. That feeling of elation, joy, amazement, gone. What does she feel now? Fear. She begins to tremble, Luke tells us. But she steps forward. She falls to the ground before Jesus, unable to even look up at him. And she confesses, it was me. I did it. I touched you. I'm so sorry. I thought that it would heal me. No excuses, no justification, no defense. Just at his feet, completely at his mercy. And what is she expecting to hear Jesus say in this moment? How dare you touch me? Who do you think you are? But what does she feel when the first word she hears is Jesus saying, daughter, daughter. This is the only time in the Bible that Jesus calls somebody daughter. Why did Jesus heal her? What does he want from her? He wants relationship. He will not let her touch and run. He will not let her be healed physically and for it to stop there. Why does he force her into the spotlight? Because he needs his daughter to know that she is loved. For 12 years, you thought you were all alone. You thought no one saw, no one cared. I saw. I cared. Daughter. A few weeks ago, uh, in community group, we were studying the book of Hebrews. And we were talking about Hebrews 4.15, where it talks about Jesus identifying with us in every way. And one sister in the community group asked me, how does Jesus know what it means to be a woman? He's never had a period. He's never had menstrual cramps. He's never given birth. How can he identify with a woman in every way? I thought it was a really good question. Very simple question, but very important, and I think especially relevant today. 
Is Christianity just Jesus mansplaining life to women? My answer to her was, you know, I'm not entirely sure, but what I do know is that it is the women, time and time again, who come to Jesus first. They get it before the men do, especially in the Gospel of Luke. Every time you have a woman and a man, the woman is attracted to Jesus first. She gets it. She sees in Jesus someone who can identify with her. The woman in the Bible see in Jesus someone who truly knows them. And what we see here in this story is Jesus unequivocally refusing to prioritize a man's request, no matter how desperate it is, over the restoration of this woman. And this really is a story of two daughters. One is Jairus' daughter. And what was her life like? Well, clearly, she grew up for the past 12 years in a loving nuclear family. But then there's another daughter, and this is Jesus' daughter. It's no accident that she suffered for the same amount of time that Jairus' daughter was alive, 12 years. Jesus' daughter had nothing, not even a name in this story. No status, no money, no husband, no children, no theology, nothing. But the moment she hears daughter, she has everything. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And we heard this last week, right? Last week we said that the Jewish concept of peace is not an absence of violence. It is wholeness. It is completion. It is fullness. She has that. Not because she's healed, not because she can now rejoin society, but because she is a daughter of God. Can I ask you a hard question? Hypothetically, let's say that Jesus could remove in the next moment your circumstantial suffering and give you whatever material or worldly goal you desire. But Jesus was not in relationship with you. Would that be enough? If he gave you your career aspirations, if he took away your suffering, if he gave you the perfect marriage and family, if he gave you physical attractiveness, intellect, power, influence, whatever you want, but withhold himself from you, would that be enough? What does Jesus want? Why does he heal? Why does he save? It's to be in relationship with you. And we see this also with Jairus. You know, as a parent of two, soon to be three boys, I think I have a mini heart attack at least once a week. Um, I've been to the emergency room twice and urgent care once in the last six months. I think the absolute worst feeling I've ever experienced in my life is that feeling of helplessness and panic when your child is hurt or has been in an accident. 
I've had my four-year-old son tumble down a full flight of stairs. I've, I've held my one-year-old in my arms while he had a febrile seizure with no idea what was going on or what I had to do. So I think more than ever in my life, I can begin, maybe begin, to imagine what Jairus is feeling here. His only daughter, his little princess, the, the apple of his eye, his, his baby girl, dying. He knew what his colleagues would think if he associated with Jesus. He knew that risks were involved, but those don't matter now. He doesn't care what people will think. If Jesus can help my little girl, whatever I can give him. He finds Jesus, he immediately falls to his knees in front of Jesus without a second thought. Please, save my daughter. I'll do, I'll do anything. Please, she's dying. What is Jairus thinking and feeling as Jesus stops and chats with this woman? Jesus, come on! Let's go! What anguish is he feeling as Jesus makes him wait? Hey, hang on, relax. As he hears Jesus say to the woman, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Jairus has no peace. Daughter? What about my daughter? Jesus, she's dying. And as Jesus is still talking to the woman, a messenger comes from Jairus' house. And the message is, she's dead. It's over. Too late, she's gone. My heart certainly goes out to Jairus. What was he feeling? Grief, of course. Anger? Why did Jesus have to stop? Maybe if he hurried, she would have had a chance. Confusion? I, I, I did everything I could to live a good life. Why, why did this happen? She was an innocent little girl. Why, why her? Where's God? Was he in despair? Of course. I'm, I'm never going to see her. I'm never going to talk to her again. It was a combination of all of these feelings. And the messenger tells Jairus, don't trouble Jesus anymore. And what that means is the whole time Jesus was talking to this woman, Jairus was tugging at his sleeve. Let's go. Let's go. The messenger says, don't bother him anymore. But Jesus overhears the message, and he tells Jairus to do the impossible. Do not fear. Just believe. Just believe. Word of advice, don't say that to someone who's hurting. Just believe. Just have faith. And at this point in the story, what faith can Jairus have? It's too late. Maybe if we'd been there sooner, there was a chance. But she's gone now. Maybe Jesus could have healed her while she was still alive. But who can bring anyone back from the dead? 
What faith? He must have walked back with Jesus to the house just in a daze. And as they approach the house, they hear it weeping and wailing, loud weeping and wailing. And Jesus kind of nonchalantly, he kind of just shrugs. He, he walks into the house and he tells everyone, he announces to everyone there, she's just sleeping. And they laugh at Jesus. And it's not this merry laugh. It's not, oh, Jesus. It is, it is, it is just dripping with scorn. Disdain, derision. Jesus hadn't even seen the body yet. You know, according to Jewish law, a pronouncement of death, it required at least two witnesses. And, and there were a lot of people in the house. She was dead. But here comes Jesus and says, no, she's not dead. She's just asleep. And Jesus takes just three of his disciples and the parents into the house, up to the room, and Jairus watches in amazement as Jesus takes his daughter by the hand and tells her to wake up. Two words, child, arise. Immediately, she gets up and she begins to walk around. You know, Jesus wants the same thing from Jairus that he wanted from the woman. The process of both of these healing accounts, it's the same even though the circumstances are very different. Both the bleeding woman and Jairus come to Jesus for physical healing, but Jesus would not let them just get the healing they wanted. You know, Jesus could have done a long-distance healing, right? He did it earlier in Luke. could have just said the word and she would have been healed. But he lets her die. Why? Because that forces Jairus into a relationship with Jesus. I mean, Jairus could have explained it away if Jesus just healed him. Oh, wow, Jesus has some power. But to see Jesus shake his daughter awake, just like Jairus does every morning, this is another power altogether. Jesus will not allow himself to be seen simply as this supernatural physician, as a benefactor who blesses. He must be the God who saves. You know, Jesus is not interested in just giving you a better life, giving you a little help. His goal is for you to surrender your life to him and to enter into relationship with him. That is what he wants from the woman. That is what he wants from Jairus. And for Jairus, Jesus is not just a man who helped his daughter. He didn't just heal Jairus' daughter. He raised her with a nudge and a whisper. To Jesus, death, the great enemy, is reduced to just sleep. There's no way that Jairus leaves this encounter with anything less than complete surrender to this incomparable power. So we've looked at who Jesus saves. We looked at why Jesus saves. My last point is how Jesus saves. Yes, he demonstrates incomparable power by raising Jairus' daughter to life with, 
with just a whisper and a nudge. But it's very interesting what Jesus says when the woman touches him. He says, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out of me. Power has gone out of me. How did Jesus heal the woman? By becoming weak. Jesus' power has gone out of him to her, making her powerful. The way Jesus saves is not by overpowering, but by becoming weak. It's very interesting that in these two healings, Jesus breaks two clear Old Testament ceremonial laws. He does two things that are forbidden. The first is that he comes into contact with a woman who is ceremonially impure because of her bleeding. Now, I, 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 I can see why modern people will look at that and it seems so antiquated and misogynistic, right? What, how can God say that a woman who's going through a natural physical occurrence is unclean? What is the rationale for that? And this is why people point to the Bible and say, see, what a misogynistic book. First of all, uh, it's not saying that women are less than men or dirtier than men. Why did menstrual bleeding make a woman ceremonially unclean? Well, it didn't make her unclean as a person, okay? It made her ceremonially unclean. Why? What things were declared unclean or impure? Anything associated with the fall. Remember in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sin against God? One of the results, the consequences of the fall is that now there is pain associated with childbirth, with reproduction. It was not the way that it was originally intended to be. Pain that is associated with reproduction. It was a result of the fall. That is why it is ceremonially unclean before the presence of a holy God. But secondly, the second law that Jesus breaks is he touches a corpse. It would also render him ceremonially unclean because another result of the fall is death. There was no death before the fall. That was not the way that it was intended to be. So contact with death renders you impure ceremonially before God. The logic behind the laws is that if you associate with anything that deals with the fall, you become contaminated. The impurity contaminates you, and that's what happens to Jesus. He becomes unclean ceremonially. But the miracle is that the moment Jesus comes into contact with impurity, the impure person becomes pure. That's not supposed to happen. It's supposed to be this one-way transaction. Impurity spreads, but it is never healed. Jesus reverses the curse of the fall. You touch impurity, that impurity infects you, but Jesus touches impurity and makes the impure pure. When an unclean woman touches Jesus, she becomes clean. 
When Jesus touches a corpse, the corpse springs to life. Why? How? 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus becomes the curse in order to reverse the curse. And we see this at the cross, where Jesus becomes ultimately polluted, unclean. Jesus identifies with this woman by bleeding on the cross. And he identifies with Jairus' daughter by dying on the cross, entering into the grave so that he could bring her out. And it's not only for them. It is also for you. Jesus reverses the curse for you. He takes your sin, your impurity, your death, and he gives you his righteousness, his purity, his life. We have incomparable power delivered through weakness. Let me close with this last point. You know, Luke does a really good job of illustrating chaos in this story. On the surface, it seems like Jesus is not in control. The language is very haphazard and abrupt. It, it, things are just happening and, and, and it seems like the wheels are coming off. The woman doesn't have control. Jairus doesn't have control. And it seems like Jesus is not in control. He's being pushed and pulled and led in every direction. But by the end, you see clearly that he has been in control this entire time. Does it seem like sometimes that nobody is at the wheel in this world or in your life? that things are spinning out of control? Well, this story tells us not to let appearances deceive you. It looks like Jesus is just part of a series of events of which he's not in control, but definitively we see that Jesus is in charge. He is in control, even when it doesn't seem like it or feel like it. This woman went 12 years before she understood what Jesus was, was doing in her life. So I invite you to come to him in faith, needy, broken, enter into relationship with him, and know this, the same Jesus who can raise the dead with, the, with a whisper and a nudge is the same Jesus who calls you daughter, son, beloved. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the good news in this story. That though we were impure because of our sin, we have a Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who can identify with us in every way, who knows, who sees, and who saves. I pray that your gospel would be good news to us and that we would respond in faith, into relationship, knowing that you, though strong, became weak so that we could be made whole. Give us your peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.